It's not always the big things that change the world. It's the small acts of kindness that happen repeatedly over a lifetime that make the world a better place. So every week we share a story of someone like you who is doing good in the world in their own way. Welcome to Doing Good with Carmen Herbert. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Doing Good. I'm your host, Carmen Herbert, and today I am so excited to talk with the incredible, amazing Paul Cardall. Paul, thank you so much for coming on, doing good, and talking with me again. It's good to be with you. It's been a while. It's been a long time, and you've had some really exciting things happen, and I want to dive right in. So for those of you who have not been listening or for some reason don't know who Paul is because he's amazing and he's everywhere and does all these incredible things. But he is a Dove Award-winning pianist, recording artist, and producer at Anthem Entertainment Group. In 1999, he founded Stone Angel Music. He recorded and released four albums, debuting number one on the Billboard charts 11 times. His music has been streamed more than 3 billion with a B times in 160 countries. He currently shares his time between Nashville, my heart, Las Vegas, and Salt Lake City with his wife and two daughters. And his latest album is December. He has a new book that is out right now, and it is called The Broken Miracle. And it's a two-book series. Part one is out right now, and part two comes out on April 5th. This is a book that is written by author J.D. JD Netto, and it's a fiction book based on Paul's life. So, Paul, you kind of described it like, think of like the work in the glory almost. <laughs> like it, it, based on his life and historical facts, things that happened to you for real. In fact, he took Paul's journals and pages of your life to write this book about a heart transplant that you received when you were younger and how that's affected your life and then kind of made this incredible, beautiful story based off of that. Well, what's crazy about the whole thing is, you know, we talk so much about how faith precedes a miracle. Yes. What happens after you get a miracle? There is no warning label miracle. You think of Lazarus yep. and what happens, you know, nobody asks what happens to Lazarus next, but there's the scriptures that talks about how they, they wanted him dead because he was evidence of what Jesus had accomplished. And so when you get a heart transplant and, you know, or some crazy thing happens into your life to where you get this amazing second chance and you've prayed for that miracle, you, you know, you've, everyone's been praying for that and then it happens. So like, what are the side effects? How do you come back and live up to what everybody thinks you are? What a, no, so this is what, uh, the broken miracle is, um, JD, he's a fantasy writer. And so he thought, number one, somebody is raised from the dead. You get a heart transplant. We're pretty much yeah. raising people from the dead. So the idea of Jesus raising us from the dead, that's no big deal. We have a lot of heart surgeons that are leaders and they understand this concept. And the bottom line is, but you get that. And I, I gave him all my journals and he just dove in. I was very vulnerable. But I want parents and people who have chronic illness and people that are dealing with all these things not to give up and to recognize that the pain, the excruciating pain that we go through is what propels us to understand the overwhelming joy that God has to pour out upon us and through us. And so it's a painful book, but it's also a very incredibly inspiring story 
that I, I know that, you know, Jesus is really the author. Yeah. Of what he did. And I'm just one story and there's many stories. You have a story, Carmen, you know, but all these stories is this beautiful tapestry of what God is doing with all of us. So, And in sharing these stories, we connect with others. And like you said, families that are going through this can read this book. Maybe they're waiting for their miracle. Maybe their child was the miracle for someone else's life. And, and, and from that perspective, watching someone move on with their child, knowing that I had to give up mine for yours. And it's, I mean, there's all sorts of deep emotions and, and like you said, trauma and heartache and, and, and beauty that comes from something like receiving a new heart figuratively and spiritually. So I would love to kind of go back in your life and talk about this. So you were born with essentially half a heart. Yeah, only a single functioning ventricle. And, you know, imagine being a, a mom, and there are so many moms because it's the number one birth defect and the number one cause of infant-related deaths is when your child is born. And, and, and today we know in utero that your, your baby can have a heart condition and there are doctors who can be prepared to take care of that. So it's very important if you are pregnant to get tested and have them look closely at the heart. But when I was born, my mom, who as a child lost her sister when she was, I think my mom was six years old and oh. gave birth to a baby and didn't make it. So when I'm born in 1973, there's no internet. There's no, there's not yeah. a lot of information. You don't know what congenital heart disease. And so when I came into the world, they just took her baby from her and, and then came back and said, the child's got some major issues. We got to operate immediately. And they called a surgeon who was Conrad Jensen. He was Russell M. Nelson's business partner. Oh, wow. And he came in from California as fast as he could. And at 23 hours, they, they pretty much opened my body and operated on it. And I have no memory. Thank goodness. Yes. But the trauma that you experience as an infant uh, from birth to then being taken from your mother, being operated on. That does have effects later on in life. And that's part of, you know, that's why I wanted to share this story in, in a way that people can relate to it because we have things that happen to us in life and we don't realize it's from things that happened in our childhood that we've completely forgotten. Yeah. Yeah. We have to process these things and, and deal with these things. And so, yeah, but I was raised with your probably not going to grow up. I've heard the doctors a million times as kid, as a kid in the hospital saying, there's no way he's going to, his body's not going to live because his heart's just so damaged, but we'll keep trying for procedures and maybe there's new technology. And, and you're in there hearing them say that to your parents. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what that does for a kid growing up in the Mormon community is you really on trying to understand what's next. Yeah. Yeah. After life. And yeah. you're not planning for retirement. You're not planning for college. You're planning for the spirit world. Oh my goodness. I just can't even imagine as a young boy having to go through that and think about that and feel like, okay, this is what I'm going to prepare for. I'm going to prepare to die. I I just can't even imagine that. You know, the, the beauty in having parents of great faith, you know, my parents have been together, I think, 54 years now. 
Wow. Uh, my dad is very faithful, loyal, loves my mother. My mother is just this amazing, incredible person, optimistic, has a lot of humor. She would use humor a lot around me and the other eight kids in the house, typical 70s Utah family. And basically they instilled in me this optimism so that the afterlife was part of this life. It was like, it's almost like it's just an extension because we would talk about all the family that's over there, all the loved ones that are over there. So even though I had not like per se said met them, yeah. there, there's that theology of you knew them before you came to earth. And so they made it so real that as a child, I had a lot of safety. And that was because they taught me things they believed in. And that then enabled me to, you know, hold out. Yes. And have hope. Yeah. 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 That that would be really reassuring to be like, okay, well, when and if this happens, I'm not going to be alone. That's not going to be a scary thing. I'm just going to be with family that loves me. That's still scary. Yeah. <laughs> still scary. And and, and lonely. I'm sure you didn't know anyone that had your same condition or that was going through what you were going through, your age especially. No, there was like one activity at Primary Children's Hospital where they gathered a bunch of kids that had other heart conditions. And I was blown away. They called us the cardiac kids. But when you go to the pool and you take your shirt off, you got the scars. So everyone's yeah. looking at you. You know, you want to play soccer with the other kids, but they're like, well, you can be the team manager and we'll give you a special shirt. So I'm like, oh, that's what Clark Kent did. Right. But he became Superman. <laughs> but he became I, Superman. So maybe I can do this. <laughs> so how old were you before you received a new heart, before you got that? So I, 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 I had a major open heart surgery as a teenager at 13, reconstructive surgery the following year. And then 22 years later, I went into severe heart failure. My daughter was three years old and they told me I could either get the heart, but it's really risky. You probably won't make it. Or there's this revision idea that we can do that will extend your life eight years, or you can do nothing and live maybe a year. So. A lot of my decision-making was based on my daughter and the psychology of what happens if a parent dies. So I studied that quite a bit. And at the same time, it was still cutting edge. There, there was not a lot of information for somebody like me. And fortunately, there was this woman that had moved to Utah, had been hired as the adult congenital cardiologist. And she was such this tough, like amazing, intelligent woman that stood up to these men who were very traditional and, you know, she would later end up getting fired as a result of it, but she's the one that saved my life because she insisted that I get a transplant. And so I met with, believe it or not, Dale Renlin, who oh, he's now an apostle for the yes. church. And he was my doctor that I went to, to talk about being transplanted. And he sits me down. He's like, Hey Paul, you know, and he knew that we were like, in the LDS church at the time. And he's like, you know, I, I am a general authority and a doctor, so we'll take good care of you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why he threw in the credential, but it was good for my parents. Yeah. And um, so he basically said, it's a catch 22 because we can list you for a heart, but it's going to take a while because you have O positive blood, which is the most popular blood. And so he pretty much how long do I have? And, you know, he says, well, you have about a year. 
well, how long is it going to take? Maybe a year. Oh my gosh. Let's start this conversation all over again. Yeah. So it's, it, it was one of those, well, let's do it. Let's hope, let's pray, let's, you know, and, and that's, that's the, that's what's crazy in life for me to live. It meant I was going to be receiving the heart of somebody who has died. And how do you pray for something like that? I was really upset and angry. And I had friends who had heart conditions, who had died. I had friends who had committed suicide, who had, you know, I'd fought my whole life to try to live. And here they have these issues, these, what I called, well, they were sex addictions. And this goes into another topic, but they had sex addictions and they felt so much shame that they could not repent and be redeemed because they made a mistake. And so they ended up taking their lives. Here I am trying to be a good person, fighting for my life, my entire life. And for me to, to, to live, someone has to die. And I was like, I was so confused, but I remember my brother, my young, youngest brother, um, he gave me a blessing. And it was interesting because he said, because of the person who has volunteered to sign up to be an organ donor, because of him, whatever sacrifice is made, you'll be able to live a little longer. But because of Jesus Christ, the greatest organ donor of all, you and all of us will live forever. Oh, that's so beautiful. So that's like, amazing. Yeah. So when that sets in, yeah, in, you understand the ecology of life. Yes. And the ironies make sense. It's true. How long did it take you then to get your heart? It was, uh, it was 385 days. We had a false alarm on Christmas. I had been waiting six, no, four months. I had a false alarm. They said, come in, we have a heart for you. And fortunately, I didn't go through with that procedure. There was a problem with the heart and I didn't want to die on Christmas. And my cardiologist at the time developed pancreatic cancer. So it was. Oh my goodness. Like, it's all this crazy. You know, this is all. Oh crazy. my goodness. And, and I ended up another nine months. So I had 385 days. I lived in the children's hospital because all the experts for my type of illness had not advanced to the adult hospitals. There weren't enough of, us, uh, enough of us alive. So I lived at a children's hospital with these kids and it was bittersweet. Yeah. Yeah. Being with their incredible, optimistic, happy spirits. And it probably brought back memories of you as a child. Mm -hmm. But then again, knowing what are their chances, you know? Yeah. Were, there were crazy evenings where there'd be a baby crying you know there's a lot of really good majority of it's all positive families yes. they're helping it's all supportive but every now and then you hear the little stories that just you just get so angry there was an infant crying and crying and crying and the father in me even though i'm laying half dead yes i, I buzz my nurse i'm like what is going on how can i help they're like yeah the rules. We can't tell you what's going on. And the baby kept crying and finally the baby stopped crying. And I learned later that a mother had dropped the baby off for heart surgery, says fix it. And when it's fixed, I'll come back and get it. Like. I can't even imagine that. Not knowing how long, not knowing what, 
I can't even. So she essentially just abandoned her baby. Yeah. I, you know, Isaiah 49, where Jesus it says, can a woman forget her sucking child? And there God is taking the, the love of a mother and a child, which is probably the most sacred form of love on earth, the most beautiful form of love. And he's saying, can they forget? And at times they do. And he's saying, yet I will never forget. I've written the on the palms of my hands. And so the walls are continually, the problems are continually before me. Yes. So Jesus is comparing that and, and you go, you know, that child is loved by, by the Lord. Yes. And the nurse came in and told me, because she let me in on the information, was yes. the volunteer who came in and helped the baby. Yeah. They volunteered oh. to go and hold kids. Oh, my goodness. It's just, I love that scripture and I love the reminder that Heavenly Father is always there and knows what we're going through. But how do you... How do you relate that to your personal life when you are going through something so hard and you're like, I, I have faith that my heavenly father's here. He loves me. He loved that child. But because he's not physically here, how do I rely on that love to get me through the hard times and, and to help me instead of, well, okay, that's a nice thought, but how has that become a reality for you? That's a very good question. I think it's a question everybody asks who is a believer. For me, it has taken, it took, I'm 48 now. It took 45 years to get the answer. And the, and the answer came after being married to, to my wife, who I met after my transplant, who completely trusts the system. She trusts God. She taught me to stop making lists, stop trying to keep rules, stop trying to do this. Just trust that he's got you. And you, it's easily said. Mm-hmm. Very it's simple, said. but not, but not easy. Right. But you have to let go of traditions that have a chain around your ankle that seemed to hold you down. And for everybody, that is something different. Because, you know, when I was in the hospital waiting, I read Neil Maxwell's But for a Small Moment, which is probably, I think, the most important talk I ever heard in my life. And he says, wow. God will customize the curriculum. I love that. He had the most beautiful way with words. Amazing. I, I, he, yep. He, he is. And when he customizes the curriculum, it teaches you the things you most need to know. So what I realized is I have to stop as a person who believes this way with the glasses God gave me. Yeah. Thinking this person over here needs to think the same way, you know, that the way I get peace and salvation, they have to have it that way too. Right. When I stepped away from focusing on what I think other people need. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, yeah. And we subconsciously do that all the time. Yeah. We compare and we go, you know, they need the gospel. They need this. They need that. When we go, you know what? They are God's child. He is in control. 
because I've had a life of doomsday and misery, I don't see the world anymore as like it's the end of days or the or doomsday. I see it as God's in complete control. Because when you have the entire world united against a bully right now, yeah, that tells you that Jesus, for me, has come as a thief in the night. Because love is on the move. There's so much. We're starting to understand one another cultures. Yes. Because of the internet, you know, travel. Yep. We see the pain, the struggles everybody has. They're all the same. Yep. And we're becoming one as a world. And so this whole idea that to be afraid, I've been afraid my whole life. And I'm not afraid anymore. Do you feel like you have to be taken to the brink to get there? Do you feel like because you have lived the worst fear, there's a very real probable chance I will die? I mean, we all will, but that you will die maybe prematurely or or according to us, because as you said, everything is, is in God's hands and he takes us when our time is ready. And I am a firm believer in that. But do you feel like you have to get to the point where you're like, I've already experienced the darkest the world has to offer. And that's when I don't fear is I, there's nothing left because I've been there and I've overcome. And so what else is there? Does that make sense? Yeah. And you know what? I was never afraid to die. I was afraid to live. Interesting. Because once you get that miracle, reality really hit because I was living most of my life somewhere between here and there. Yeah. And so it's no secret that my marriage ended. I went down a path of what I thought I was doing the right thing, confusion. I had a lot of PTSD that I needed to get addressed. And I didn't know that until yeah. after a divorce. And you can talk all day long about a miracle and how amazing it is that God would raise me from the dead. But the bottom line is I murdered my family because when you get a divorce and you love God, that's murder. So how do you redeem your life after a divorce? And even if you're a victim of divorce or it's just the circumstances, you know, we're allowed to fail in almost everything except marriage. You know, you can take biology 101 over again, but you cannot take the marriage over again. And one of the things I learned is that I had put so much trust in the afterlife that I forgot to put some faith in people that are actually here. And I don't know if that makes sense to anybody or resonates with anybody, but I think it is very, very important if you have a chronic illness to not just rely on you know, spiritual power, you need real professional people to guide you and help you in this life. Yes. You need therapy. You need not just doctors for the physical, but doctors for the mental. Yeah. Because while I waited for my heart transplant, my brother was killed. He was bipolar and suffered mental illness. And it's no secret about that. That's been a very public thing. But how do you deal with grief of that? And all these things kind of build up. So once you have the miracle then all these crazy things happen. It's like after Jesus was risen from the grave, we know what happened to all the, all the people that believed him and loved him and all the problems. 
they went through, it wasn't, you know, all roses. No. Day. It was very hard. Mm-hmm. But the one thing I came to, to, to discover is, again, because it's a customized curriculum, we have to kind of like throw everything. For me, I had to get everything off the table and start putting back the pieces that God wanted on the table for me. You know, and it's not the same for everybody. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, that it is different for everyone. And I'm sure now you look at people and their struggles and in your family or or friends and what they're going through with, and not that you were ever judgmental before, but maybe a lot less like, hey, <laughs> like everyone, everyone is fighting their own hard, difficult battle. And I think what you said is so important that one of my favorite quotes is, and I can't remember which apostle said it. He said, Heavenly Father does love us and he does care about us, but it is usually through another person that he meets our needs. Elder Holland, that person can be a therapist, a doctor, a counselor, Mm -hmm. someone that says, let's give you medication for your mind. Let's help you out. Let's do this. Let's try this. That, and then people think, well, I don't want to do that. And it's like, but that was, that was your answer. That was how Heavenly Father is meeting your needs. And I don't know why sometimes we push back on that. My dad's a psychiatrist. And so I talk about this a lot, mental health. And and I had postpartum after my fourth was born. I was in the hospital for a day because I essentially had a breakdown. I thought I was having a stroke. I had four kids under six. My husband was gone working. He was the young men's president at the time. I mean, it was just really busy. And my body just said, can't do it. We're done. And I was so scared. I'm like, I don't want to take anything. I don't. My husband's like, why? Why? And it was the stigma. And I don't know, like, I need help. And he's like, what? so you need help. Why not get that help? You'd rather yeah. live your life without it. And so he was so supportive of me. And I was so grateful for him that he's like, let's figure this out instead of, oh, this is weird. And there's something wrong and nothing that I could have done about it. But yeah that it's important to reach out to others and that Heavenly Father will use those people to bless your life. And besides people, you and I have something in common that we are music lovers and we are artists. I use my voice. You use your your hands. At, you're an incredible piano player. We use our minds and things and our hearts too. But, but right. vocally, that's how I some days when I'm going through my difficult trials, I will just put on music and sing. And I want to ask you from artist to artist and musician to musician, what do you think it is about music that can express the deepest, darkest emotions of your heart and soul that nothing else can? Because there are some days I'm like, I can't talk about it. I can't think, but I can sing. I can sing and I can find a song that will release this. And you do that through playing the piano. What is it about music that does that? I, well, a couple of things. And that's, that's, that's a great lead in because a couple of things. We have experiences in our life that cause us to need a way to soothe. Yeah. We need some self-soothing from whatever trauma. You know, we're having a bad day. We want to be soothed. Yeah. Our bodies are made up of, you know, 85% water. So when you're listening to music, you're getting uh, healthy vibrations. Okay. The Beach, Beach Boys were right. Good vibrations. Good vibrations. So you're, you're basically getting this stimulation into your body. And Harvard Health, I've got this study on my website, 
basically we release dopamine from, you know, parts of our brain that enable us to process joy and peace and happiness. And so it's kind of like a washing of the spirit over us. And then secondly, from a spiritual standpoint, I believe that listening to certain types of music helps us feel the spirit of God because God wants us to know we're not alone. And if you listen close enough, you'll hear God because you'll feel that everything's going to be okay. And so it could be, you know, look, it could be anything from, you know, Coldplay to some Charlie Wilson to playing the piano or whatever, but all music connects with everybody differently because of our DNA, the water within us, the energy, but it's, it's, it's a divine gift that we've been given. It's very material and real and playing the piano for me allows me to process life. And that's how you become, you know, back into true self rather than being disassociated. You need to process what you've experienced and sitting down and playing and not have any lyrics. You're, you're just processing emotion versus trying to explain it. Yes. Because the spirit has a way of explaining things without you even then trying to explain it. Yeah. Yes. It's this weird thing. Well, and the spirit it speaks every language, but especially music. And this, one of my favorite scriptures is when Heavenly Father was talking to Emma Smith about gathering the hymns. And he said, because the song of the heart is a prayer unto me. It is. It's a supplication when we use music to heal. And, and you can hear God's voice in a song. It's real. So how old were you when you first started playing piano? And was it something that your parents gently encouraged <laughs> you're going to do this and you're going to practice or when did you fall in love with it was it something you're like i've always wanted to play the piano or did they say we need to get you to do something you're going to do piano well you know when when you've got eight kids and you're trying to figure out what can we get them doing so that we can get them out of our hair yep music was one of those things because my great aunt taught piano and my mother oh. had to go visit her mother and the great aunt lived by the mother. So my three older sisters were taking piano lessons. So at age eight, it was my turn to start taking. But the problem was I was not interested at the time. And we used to have to go down into this store, food storage unit where she'd have all the music in a cabinet. So it was kind of like I was afraid. <laughs> and she had like this statue of a knight. Oh. She would open up the cabinet with all the bottled peaches. And there'd be like waltzes from the 20s. Oh, my goodness. So she wanted me to learn the music of when she was a teenager. Yeah. You know, Joplin and stuff like that, which is, you know, dates her. But I was just not, I didn't like it at all. I had one recital and quit, but I loved music. I was using all my paper out money to buy cassettes um, and then CDs. And then I had this another traumatic experience as a teenager after my third open heart surgery, a friend of mine was killed in a car accident and he could sit down and play all the Billy Joel songs. So in trying to understand why is he's healthy and then he's gone. Yeah. And here my dad is stressed over medical bills and I, and, and my doctors are fighting to keep me alive and, and I'm here. Yeah. So I'm trying to understand the irony in life back then. And that's where I went into the piano. You know, that was kind of my 14-year-old prayer experience where yeah. 
you go in the piano and I hit a couple notes on the piano and right there, I just, I felt, I felt this warm blanket. I felt, I felt God tell me everything's going to be okay. And so music for me, creating music, creating things that never existed, playing the hymns became my Xbox. Like I got so addicted to it that that kind of just evolved into a job and it's where we are now. Oh, how do I get my kids to think of music as their Xbox? How, Paul? You got to try to we, see the piano. Do it. Uh, seriously, I know. Do John Schmidt show. I know. I know. Or a Paul Cardall concert. I mean, I'm trying... Music is a, is a big part of our life and my kids' lives. And yeah. it's right now, it's still a chore. And what's funny is they'll go to the piano, they'll pick up their guitar. My oldest son does violin. They'll play it on their own. But if it's like, did you practice? You've got a recital. They're like, uh-uh, nope, not doing mm-hmm. it. And so they have to find, I think, that spiritual connection, like you said. I think they, yeah. they have to find that before they fall in love with it and i'm i'm still hoping that their moment comes like yours well i tell pair i tell piano teachers i know you're trying to teach skills and you're trying to get them to learn yeah the basics but ask the kid what's their favorite song and then find the sheet music a very simple version even if you have yes have them say if you'll learn these other two pieces here's this other song and then they're going like, okay, I want to do that. I'm going to play this. You know, as long as it's not Cardi B, it'll be fine. Yeah. Nope. My, my little, my second oldest, and he's a Beatles freak. He could tell you everything about John and Paul and Ringo and George. I, his middle name is George, not after him, after my dad. But he thinks like, oh, like he has this connection and he loves the Beatles. So I'm hoping through... One of their songs. Yep. He finds his love and passion. But I want to talk to you. You said something. You said sometimes I I sit down and not having a lyric or knowing where you're going to go, just playing. You had an awesome experience. Is it called the Oberlin Conservatory? Is that what it was where you recorded there and you essentially, you did just that. You sat down and you just created real time on the spot. What was that like? It was, you know, first off, Oberlin College is the Steinway dealer technician. University. Yes. And for those who don't know, Steinway is, it's, it's the piano. I mean, it's, it's, it's the Lamborghini of pianos. Yes. And I'd been an EFY counselor at Oberlin and they had pianos everywhere. And so one day I wanted to go back. And fortunately, Michael Bishop, who is a 21 Grammy winning engineer who we lost last year but he was willing he said listen i've got three or four steinways in the studio and i wanted to just go and play and improvise like a jazz player but yeah classical style it's more my style and i just wanted to i just said lord this could either work or it could totally blow up in my face yes we scheduled two days and i just started improvising i think over 42 43 songs Oh my goodness. Just on the fly and so peaceful piano. And then I did this again with the new album, December. Yeah, I pretty much just took the best songs from those moments where I felt totally in self and connected with the Lord and the Lord just poured out through me what what I needed and what I think um, my audience needed. And so that became peaceful piano and then 
album December. And December is you start with kind of the harvest moon in September, right? Your thoughts and feelings on the season of transitioning from fall to winter. Why did you choose that transition versus winter to spring or spring to summer? Or are those maybe coming too in the future? Well, well you know, people go, do you, do you write to a, like, do you write to something? And actually I just play what I'm feeling. And then I have to come up with titles later. Yeah. Like, I like how it used to be like Mozart was like, it's symphony by. Right. It's just so much. (laughs) Second creative step. Come up. I just know that with the pandemic, Christmas season was going to be hard for a lot of people. Yes. A lot of families were out of work. A lot of musicians, the tour that I know run dry, no money. How are you going to give Christmas to your kids? Yeah. I wanted to create an album that was kind of like a soundtrack to recognizing that there are the dark seasons. Yeah. Within the dark seasons, there's hope. Yeah. A lot of minor keys with keys. And yeah, so I just thought Harvest Moon up until New Year was the right amount. Plus, I think those were the best songs on the improvisation. So sometimes you have to improvise on. Yes. It's mean because everything in America has to be defined. Yes. Right. Tell us the meaning behind it. Yes. And and the great thing with music is it's revelation. It's personal revelation. Yeah. You can't wait to argue with your friends. That's not. Yes. Google and you're like, oh, that's what it means. You know? Well, and that's why it's so hard when sometimes people interview artists and they're like, tell us the backstory and then they will and then people are almost disappointed and it's like but it's up for interpretation this is why i wrote it this is what it is for me but you can take the same song and say well actually i listened to that when it was the death of my grandmother and that there's hope coming and anyone can take that it's like it's like the scriptures that's why jesus was the master storyteller he told in parables he's like someone's going to get something out of this piece someone's yep. going to get something else out of it he never told a true story they're all parables. Is that right? They're when all he's quoting scripture and talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he'll bring up historical moments. Okay. When he's telling stories to teach principles. Just just They're all stories. parables. That is so interesting. That is really interesting. I don't know if I've ever thought of it that way. And he was. And and that was a way to teach the least of them as well as, as the wisest. Yeah. I mean, we have our nursery rhymes and our very basic principles, you know, like basic stories that are told to teach us things we most need to know. Yeah. And they can be applied because if it's a true story, it, it pertains to a certain period of time, certain this, certain that. But if it's in like an allegory, it could be applied to anyone's personal life. Yes, it's true. No, I love that. I think everything in life and everything good goes back to the Savior and Jesus Christ. I had a conversation with one of my dear young women the other day who's struggling with some things. And she said, does every bad thought come from Satan and every good thought comes from Heavenly Father? And I had to think about that. And I'm like, well, we are agents and we are unto ourselves and we get to decide what we do and we get to think certain ways. And I said, so if I have like, I want to hit my brother, did Satan tell me to do it? 
Well, no, but are bad thoughts, is he the creator of evil? Okay, yes. If I have a good thought to, I should take neighbor to a friend. Is Heavenly Father telling me that or did I just have that thought? Well, does it, aren't they one and the same? Because every good thought comes from God. Every good creative piano piece spark of, yeah. oh, I should do this. Well, moral agency, you know, with what you're saying, it, if Satan says, you know, I'm doing that, which has been done in other worlds, then he is not the author of evil. He's the proponent. He is the advocate of evil. He's the advocate. He wants you. So, so when we are agents and moral agents, it basically means, yes, we do have the choice to injure, but the redemption of Christ enables all of us to be redeemed from it as though it never happened. So yeah. It's as though, it's as though I, you know, I imagine seeing the Lord one day and knowing half the things I, I've done in the past. And, and because he's a carpenter who fixes things, fixes them so smoothly that you'll never know it's a replicate. And so nobody will know. I love that. Which I'll remember. Yeah. Yes. So. Yep. And I love that idea too of that. It's not that they're gone because every experience makes us who we are. And it's not that it's like taken from our memory, but I love what you said. It's restored so completely. It's made whole that you would never know that it's look how beautiful and smooth this is without taking away the experiences we learned going through that. And those memories. Because yeah. I've thought that before too. Like, how can Heavenly Father just forget I did this bad, horrible thing? How can he just forget that if I repent? And it's more that we don't forget the person you are because of it, but the thing isn't what matters. And healthy. who are you now? Yeah, it's not healthy to bring it up again. No, exactly. You don't go. dwell on it. So I want to ask you, Paul, if you feel like you are still in the December of your life? Are you in this, this awaiting period? Or are you out? Are you out into spring now? I have never felt more thoughts liberate my salvation process safe that I'm letting go and letting the Lord work. How, for those that are maybe still struggling with that, what advice do you have about getting there? Well, I think you need to put your what you need that the Lord knows that he's reinforced in your mind time and time. That it's okay if people reject you. You're not here to prove yourself to people at all. And artists, the creative types, were very insecure, were narcissistic. It's all about proving yes ourselves yes from day it one is. being born it was me proving that god performs miracles yeah um, my first marriage you know my 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 wife was she's still one of my best friends but it was like well so and so doesn't get a miracle and the data and statistics there's no way you live and that's not what i needed at the time so no. like, i have to prove you wrong and she's yep. an amazing person, the best mother to my kids ever and worthy to like, you know, tie her shoes. But she, at that time, it was just so negative and, and I get it. We were all in pain and hurting. Yeah. I think what you have to do is block out what everybody wants from you and just yeah. focus on what, oh, God, it's from you. Separate tradition, culture, theology, all of it. That one-on-one -on -one with the Lord. And be so intellectually honest with yourself. 
So that will lead you where you most need to be to have the greatest peace of mind. And it will make it a lot of people, but that's the price of having the chains broken. And a close relationship. Would you say that your relationship with your father in heaven and savior is? They're the author of it all. They are the ones leading. They are ones that have lived. Absolutely. So where can people go, Paul, if they want to learn a little bit more about your journey in a fictional way that with the broke with the broken miracle, but if they want to know more about this incredible book that's out or listen to your music, are you performing anywhere anytime soon? Tell us all the things about how to get more Paul. <laughs> or you can ask Alexa or Siri to play Paul. Okay. The broken miracle. If you know someone who really needs to understand their value. Yeah. The broken miracle is perfect for them because we are, you know, we are the moths among butterflies. Moths understand darkness, but we're obsessed with the light. And those that feel like misfits, outcasts, it's for you. But, I, you know, my website, paulcardall.com, I have a podcast called All Heart. Paul Cardall, I like to interview a lot of unique people that have amazing gifts and those gifts have helped define their purpose. We've had like Jonathan Rumi from The Chosen and was from The Chosen and Gentry and Piano Guy. Well, Stephen Sharp Nelson, we got to the heart life and, and some, some great people. So there's a lot going on. I love that. Yeah. I love, and where can they listen? Just anywhere podcasts are anywhere. streamed? Okay. I'm sure someone's took out an old CD from their mother. <laughs> CDs. Oh man, doesn't that just date us? I'm our kids found they're like, what? What are because they you know DVDs even are like almost a thing of the past. CDs. CDs are actually making a little comeback in the rap world. Are they? They like to have these little you know cassette tapes, and then they have now these little CD players they'll sell with the. Oh, that is awesome. Can you even imagine that we would be saying they're making a comeback? I mean, that's just wild. That's really cool, though. Well, Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to come on my podcast today to tell us about your life and your change of heart in many ways and for all of the good you are doing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Doing Good with Carmen Herbert. If you'd like to hear more from Carmen and get brand new full-length talks that you can't get anywhere else from some of your favorite speakers like John By the Way, Meg Johnson, and Hank Smith, you can exclusively inside our Turtle House. And when you join today, you can get two months free when you sign up for an annual plan. Just go to OurTurtleHouse.com to get started. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you back here for another episode next week.